Hi there, this is Brian Barnett with The Last Symptom. When I started The Last Symptom, I never in a million years imagined it would grow as it has. In these early shows especially, audio quality was often iffy, and there were references to services or online groups that are outdated and no longer in use. Great improvements have been made. Where should you go for all of the most up-to-date resources that I offer? TheLastSymptom.com is my permanent website full of free resources where everything is always up to date and that I encourage you to refer back to often. There are also a few modest paid resources at TheLastSymptom.com. These support my efforts and have allowed The Last Symptom to exist for as long as it has. These include one-on-one phone conversations with me one-on-one Zoom video calls with me, and perhaps most importantly, the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, which is a two-week, intensive, pre-recorded online video course that is far superior to things like DBT. The Last Symptom has a flourishing YouTube and Rumble channel where I publish regular orange slices, which are condensed video insights of five or ten minutes in length. If you're just now discovering the last symptom, welcome. I hope you will find every insight and resource you need here for authentic and permanent recovery from emotional disorders such as borderline personality disorder. Now on to the show. Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental health nor emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he has gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as they individually and personally choose while accepting full responsibility for their own individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you are acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Happy Thursday, everybody. This is The Last Symptom for the podcast, and I'm the host and creator of it, Brian Barnett. Do I sound any different? Do, uh, do you notice anything different about me? The only reason I ask is because I've been growing a beard for the past few weeks, and it's starting to fill out, so... I'm sure I probably sound a bit grittier and masculine than you're used to. I, I, I really hope it doesn't distract from today's episode. This beard thing, you know, I, I endure it for a couple, two, three months, and then it comes off. i got to say, it's, it's just like being reborn. Now, as for the numbers are concerned, it's either outright hate or, dear God, don't ever shave that thing off. There are just a few things a fellow's got to do every once in a while to truly embrace all that life has to offer. And uh, the beard is one of them. Fatherhood, of course, was my other one. So, uh, th- you know, that should be my argument for anybody who hates my beard. Well, all right, let's make a baby instead. <laughs> See how quickly the beard starts looking preferable. Now, this week I got some private correspondence. Let's see if you can relate to it. The person expressed the following. I do not see being sad 
as productive or to have any value. To continue to think about bad things has no value to me. Have you ever felt like that? Do you pick up on the fact that the person is talking about two entirely different things here? One, what the person feels. And two, what the person chooses to continue thinking about. As that simmers in your mind for a second, let me read the entire comment again so you can compare it to what I just said. I do not see being sad as productive or to have any value. To continue to think about bad things has no value to me. Now ask yourself the following. Do I confuse my thoughts for my feelings and my feelings for my thoughts? Why does it matter? Well, because in a single thought, the writer has expressed an incorrect perspective and has also expressed a correct perspective. Now, whether you see any value to feeling sad or not, the value is there. Remember, all feelings are inherently valuable. By not paying attention to what a feeling is trying to tell you, you're refusing to acknowledge information about your circumstances or life or needs that the feeling's trying to tell you about. It's like this. Imagine you're sitting next to a campfire, just enjoying the evening, and all of a sudden, you start feeling a burning sensation on your leg. And so what do you do? You ignore it. And sort of in the background, your thoughts go like this. I don't know what that burning sensation is, and I don't care. I don't want to be distracted from looking at all these beautiful stars. Meanwhile, a hot coal has popped out of the fire. It's landed on your pant leg, and your leg is being engulfed in flames. The burning sensation is information. It's trying to tell you something. No matter how unpleasant the sensation is, a guy's got to listen to it, or a girl, and uh, try to figure out what it's trying to tell you. That's the whole reason your body has this ability to provide such feedback in the first place. Your feelings work this way. They are inherently valuable in the same way that any of your senses are valuable. Your sight, your taste, your hearing. Now, the second thing my friend in the correspondence mentioned deals with not feelings, but with thoughts. The writer mentioned feelings and thoughts together as if they were the same thing, but they're not the same thing at all. It's true that some thoughts are destructive. There's no good continuing to entertain them. That there is no practical point in continuing to choose to think those thoughts. On the other hand, it's important to determine if one isn't simply using this as an excuse for why they don't need to determine where their feelings are coming from and what those feelings might be trying to tell you. You hear this talked about all the time as running from one's feelings. And it's just not healthy. Remember the fire 
and your leg. But it is correct that continuing to think bad things is bad. For example, somebody may really piss me off, and uh, in my anger, maybe I imagine knocking that person's teeth out and throwing them off the edge of a cliff. Now notice, the feelings that I experienced and the thoughts are not inseparable things. They're not the same thing. We're talking about two different things here. My anger is not good or bad. I'm allowed to feel angry. You're allowed to feel angry. Remember, in a couple episodes back, I explained how feelings themselves are never good or bad, right or wrong. And uh, I explained the reasons for this. But what I am not allowed to do is to keep thinking about assaulting another person. Because those sorts of thoughts are not beneficial in any way. They are bad thoughts. And I have a choice to not continue entertaining those thoughts. You see, thoughts can be classified as good or bad, right or wrong. I'm allowed to feel any way I feel about anything. I am not allowed to continue thinking about anything I want to think about. Now, obviously, I'm using the term allowed here loosely for purposes of informality. Nobody can read your mind or police your thoughts. And uh, you have free will, and you're an independently operating adult free agent. But in terms of what is constructive and good and healthy, it is wrong to continue thinking bad thoughts. See, you have control over what thoughts you continue to entertain. Thinking is something you do, as opposed to your feelings, which are not something you do. Rather, they're something you experience. Choosing to not entertain bad thoughts, such as punching people in the teeth and uh, torturing kittens, is different than using your thoughts to analyze why, why do I feel so angry over what the person just said or did, and what are my practical solutions to it. To choose not to think these sorts of thoughts, which are constructive and beneficial, is not so great. Because this is precisely the way your feelings and thoughts, which are everybody's two primary tools for gathering information about our environment and needs, are designed to work together in harmony. So you see, some thoughts should be rejected, and other thoughts should not be run away from. Now, let's talk about uh, sex and the principle of compelling force. Sex, that's right. Good old dirtied sex. Compulsive... Unhealthy sex is a, uh, it's a natural symptom of borderline personality disorder. To understand the reasons for why this is so, I discussed it way back. I recommend everybody go back and refresh their memories. However, the subject today is not the whys. Rather, the subject is, how do you know if uh, sex is a good thing or a bad thing for you to engage in if you're a person trying to recover from an emotional disorder and its effects? And this brings us to the principle of compelling force. Now, in all things in life, it's not the thing which can be classified as healthy or 
unhealthy. Rather, it's the reasons, the motivation, that is, the compelling force, which determines the behavior. So I know that there are many artists with borderline personality disorder. A lot of people who listen to me and follow me are artists. Now, all of you may not realize it, but the same principle that uh, I'll be applying to sex also applies to your creativity. Interesting, huh? Something that you and society generally regards as overwhelmingly positive is more likely than not an unhealthy aspect of your emotional disorder. Now, before you reject this idea, think about the irony that so many of you are artists. That's not a coincidence. The fact that so many people listening to me right now are artists is not a coincidence. Now, let's talk about it a little bit more. Do you remember the podcast where I spoke of two people at a gym doing exactly the same things? Let's take a fresh look at it. The emotionally unhealthy person goes to a, a gym and spends 10 hours a day there wearing themselves out. Why? Because they're certain that their worth or value depends on external factors, such as physically looking the best they can possibly. They, they can possibly look. Now, this person's time at the gym is unhealthy because it's being motivated by emotionally unhealthy thinking. You see, they're convinced that if they don't have and maintain a movie star body, that nobody will like them. Not just that nobody will like them, that they, but that they will literally not be worth liking Now, the emotionally healthy person also spends 10 hours a day at the gym. She does the same workout routine. But she's not being compelled to exercise because her worth is dependent on how she looks. She does it because she sees her body as inherently valuable. Therefore, she wants to take care of it in the best way she can. She wants to be in the best health she can be because she already values herself. And as a result, she wants to treat her body well and maintain it in the best possible shape. This is healthy thinking. So we've got two people here, both doing exactly the same things, and yet for one, the time at the gym is evidence of emotional unhealth. And for the other, it's an indication of emotional health. Now, sex is no different. Sex is good. I mean, who doesn't love sex? Yeah, gimme, gimme. Yet, what is compelling you? Is it because you can't generate your own sense of inner self-worth? Or is it because you just enjoy it? You value it as a human adult need, but you don't depend on it to feel a sense of worth. If this is so, then there's nothing unhealthy about it. Now, artists, there's nothing inherently bad about creating art. But are your creative pursuits a way for you to avoid addressing things that make you emotionally uncomfortable? Is it an escape? 
a distraction? Distraction is good for emotionally healthy people from time to time, but it's unquestionably not good for people with emotional disorders who have been living in denial for whole lifetimes and running from their uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Now, just as a footnote on sex, principles of good and bad are another matter altogether. And that's between you and your understanding of what God favors or does not favor. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about memory. I get correspondence from people who say, I can't remember my early childhood. And uh, so how am I supposed to recover from this disorder if I can't remember the early details about how I was treated? Well, let me explain why that happens and then uh, put your mind at ease. Uh, People with emotional disorders run from uncomfortable feelings. Any slightly negative feeling gets pushed aside and imagined away. That's why you don't remember things. Emotionally healthy people don't run from their feelings, no matter how uncomfortable they make them feel. They analyze the feelings to see what it's trying to tell them, and then they use their feelings as information. For example, if somebody they love dies, the emotionally healthy person feels terrible pain and grief. They don't run from the grief. I I know that's hard for people to understand, but an emotionally healthy person doesn't run from pain. They embrace it as information that they have suffered a tremendous loss, that the feelings are a natural reflection of this. And with time, the loss will be accepted and the pain will wane, that is, uh, lessen in intensity. You know, I, I have had this problem <laughs> recently. My divorce was so painful that for years I spent my time not thinking about my past life. And I was so effective in this that nowadays I have a really hard time remembering my ex-in-laws' names, Ray and Joanne, Ray and Joanne. And uh, m- my brain was so effective at this, at at pushing away and avoiding these these uncomfortable feelings that I've had a really difficult time remembering my in-laws' names. Now, for a decade, I was very close to them. I spent a lot of time with them. And the only reason I'm able to tell you what the names are now is because I spent a lot of time trying to recall them, and finally the names came back to me, and I, and I wrote them down. But that's how effective this protective mechanism is within us that we can push our feelings aside so effectively and our memories that we forget things things that were uh, you know parts of our everyday lives so as a child you didn't learn the emotionally healthy way to do things you were in an emotionally painful environment a dangerous environment So for your own sanity, you had to come up with some methods for enduring what you neither had the capacity to fully understand or prevent. Therefore, you learned to push uncomfortable feelings aside and not think about them. You got very, very good at this. You got so good at it that now there are many things you can't remember. 
But here's the important point. Your memories are not imperative to recover from an emotional disorder. What is imperative is your ability to see patterns in your parents' behaviors and to understand what natural unspoken messages are being communicated in such behavior. I've already told you what the two distorted core beliefs are for everybody with borderline personality disorder, so you don't have to figure that out from scratch. All you have to do is figure out how the patterns of your parents' behaviors communicated the messages that caused you to adopt the two distorted core beliefs at the root of borderline personality disorder. And for that, there's no need to remember things back from when you were five. Look at your parents now. They're, they're still thinking and behaving exactly the same way. They, they haven't changed. Some people say that their parents have mellowed with the passing of the years. So? So? Their perspective of life, their attitudes, and their fundamentally unhealthy views have not. They are still the same emotionally unhealthy people that they were 40, 50 years ago. You have to study the cause and effect nature of their way of being and the messages you had to have heard from that as a child. Folks, uh, thanks again for joining me and for indulging me. I thought I'd close this week with a joke since, you know, people are interested in being happy this time of year. Now, the scene is heaven, and St. Peter is at the pearly gates, and uh, he's checking in applicants for heaven. So one couple approaches, a man and a woman, and they say, uh, Excuse me, sir, we'd like to get into heaven. And St. Peter says, well, let me just check my records here. And he taps around on his keyboard, and he looks at his computer screen there, and he says, uh, oh, oh, this isn't, this isn't looking good. He, he looks at the man, and he says, sir, uh, clearly, in life, you are a lover of money. In fact, you loved money so much that, if I'm not mistaken, your wife here, is named Penny, is that correct? Well, the man just, he gets all bashful. He doesn't know what to say, and he admits, yeah, it's true. It is true. And uh, St. Peter pushes a red button on his keyboard there, and poof, the couple disappears. Well, here comes another couple, uh, another man and a woman, and they, uh, they come up to St. Peter there at the pearly gates, and they say, hey, we'd like to get into heaven if we could. St. Peter says, well, let me just check my database here. And he looks it up and he says, uh, oh, 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 no, this, this is not good. And he looks at the man again. And he says, sir, it appears here that you're a lover of wine, that in life you loved wine so much that your wife's name here is Sherry. Is that correct? Well, the man's cheeks turn red. He just doesn't know what to say. And he admits it. Yeah, yes, yeah, sir. It's uh, it's true. I am a lover of wine, and my wife here is named Sherry. Well, Saint Peter says that's just not going to work up here. He pushes a button. Poof, they uh, they both disappear. Now, uh, not thirty seconds has passed when another couple starts walking up to the pearly gates. Uh, another man 
and a woman. And as they do, uh, the man, he leans over to the, to the woman and he says, uh, let's not waste our time here, Fanny. Mm-hmm. 